Hello guys, and welcome back to the Casual Fight Fan Podcast. This is your host, JJ, and today we're going to be talking about UFC 265, the fight that happened last night. There's a new interim champion in the heavyweight division, and his name is Cyril Gaon. That fight against Derek Lewis last night was one of the best performances by Gaon, hands down. The incredible footwork and the technically sound game plan he employed to defeat Derek Lewis demonstrates Gon's talents and puts him in his place as one of the best of the best. Fighting against someone like the Black Beast is so dangerous because he just has too much power in his hands, and even when he's losing the fight, all it takes is one punch to land for Derek to end the night. Um, A great example is when Derek Lewis fights against Curtis Blades. For most of the fight, Blades is basically piecing Lewis up. He's tagging him with shots and putting him on a good technical show. Um, But then Lewis catches Blades with an uppercut coming in and everything basically, it, it was all over. So basically for Cyril to safely evade all of Derek's firepower demonstrates his incredibly high fight IQ. This fight was almost like a video game, uh, with Derek Lewis being the final boss battle that you have to defeat to win the game. I play Mortal Kombat on the phone, right? And every couple of battles, you have to face a boss character. At the beginning of the fight, the boss is basically at uh, normal power, nothing special or particularly aggressive. But then as you begin to deal damage and slowly drain his HP, the boss gets more aggressive and his energy bar accumulates more and more power until it gets full and ding, the boss basically unleashes a bomb that can end the fight if it lands. Derek Lewis is basically the same thing. He's like the boss character in that fight. He's not super high output or overly aggressive, um, but what he is is he's patient. He saves his energy and just bides his time, waiting for Cyril to come in and show an opening somewhere. And when the time is right, boom. He'll unleash a flurry of punches that are intended to KO his opponent, even if only one of them lands. But going into the fight, Gon had an excellent game plan. He was constantly on his toes and had great control of distance, ready to move out of range whenever it seemed like Derek Lewis was going to charge forward with his explosion of punches. He uses leg kicks excellently to chop down on Lewis's lead leg, and the damage accumulates to the point where by the third round it's pretty clear that Lewis doesn't have a good answer to them, and it affects the power of his rear hand. Also, Gon is not afraid to run away. Um, multiple times in the fight, when Lewis catches a body lock on Gon and tries to end the fight by keeping the fight in, fight in close distance um, and make Gon trade, Gon just runs away and doesn't engage with him. Some people don't really like that style, they think it's really boring and it kind of makes Gon seem like a coward, but I think that um, it's very smart of him and it just shows that he's a very fi- high fight IQ. So basically with that win, Gon became the interim heavyweight champion, and now the heavyweight division in the UFC is very interesting. At the top of the heap, we have the king, Francis Ngannou, and hopefully if everything goes right, he's going to be set to fight Cyril Gon um, soon in a title unification bout. 
It'll be interesting because the pair are former training partners at the MMA factory in France, and it'd be even more awesome if they could make that event happen in Paris, where MMA is now legalized. So Dana was talking about that in the post-fight interview, and he said that if that can happen, that would be really awesome. It'd get a lot of uh, fans from France in the stadium, and either way, it would turn out a, a new French champion would be the champion of the heavyweight division of the UFC. It would be huge. So I think that fight, in that fight, the question comes down to whether Gon will be able to play the same smart, elusive game against Francis Ngannou. It's no question that Francis Ngannou has the advantage in power, but the skill advantage isn't really clear. Um, obviously, Ngannou's stand-up is very good. I don't know how how good Gon is on the ground. It seems like both of them, if they fight, if that match um, is made, it seems like it'd be a predominantly stand-up fight. But it'd be great nonetheless. Outside of that pair, there's also incredible talent in the heavyweight division right now. Um, Derek Lewis, even though he lost that fight, he's still at the top despite that loss because he just has the power in his hands. And it's almost like Deontay Wilder in boxing where even though Deontay's skills are not that great, he, he, his nickname is the Big Eraser because if his right hand lands, it'll erase all the mistakes that he's made and it'll end the fight. It's almost like another comparison is the Golden Snitch in Quidditch in Harry Potter. Um, Derek Lewis is at the top of the heap. Stipe Miocic is also going to be um, challenging somebody in the top 10, top 5, I think he's going to be looking for that rematch, but it's not really quite um, apparent who Francis is going to fight and what sort of pathway the championship belt is going to take. Um, because we have John Bones Jones also lurking in the background. He's not set to fight in 2021, but we have confirmation that the former light heavyweight champion is coming back in 2022. And he's looking to make his heavyweight debut with a championship fight. According to multiple sources, it seems that John Jones uh, was given the opportunity to fight Stipe Miocic sometime in 2021, but either he decided that the money wasn't right, or he decided that he deserved a heavyweight championship fight right off the bat. And so that's apparently what he's going to be going for. I'm really intrigued to see how a heavier build will treat John Jones. Obviously, he'll come in with more strength and power, but the question I have is whether the extra 20 or 30 pounds of muscle will slow him down. Um, it's known that heavyweights simply don't move as fast as some of the lighter weight divisions, and that may have an impact on John Jones' game and dictate how well his skills and his talent transfer over into this heavier weight division. Moving on, we have the co-main event of the evening, which was Jose Aldo versus Pedro Munoz. Um, here's my breakdown of that fight. So the first round was pretty close. I think Aldo came out with impeccable defense. Came out in a traditional Muay Thai stance, hands held up in high guard, and his lead leg was always ready to block. Uh, for the first round, I believe that he checked most, if not every single leg kick that Pedro threw and his reaction timing was spot on as well. It looked like he was really relaxed, and he used that first round really to get a good gauge on what weapons Munoz was going to use and basically get a timing on some of his reactions. 
Second round comes along. I think Aldo shows a little bit more output. Um, it's still very evenly matched, I would say. Um, Aldo definitely has the power advantage. This is also when he throws a couple of knees and he displays some beautiful body shots. Um, the thing about Aldo is that build of his, he's just got those delts and those powerful lats. And every time he throws a body shot, you can just imagine the amount of power that goes into it. Even though it's the Bantamweight division, one of the lighter divisions. Um, overall, I think Aldo had more shots land, and he probably did more damage to Pedro Munoz. Although Pedro Munoz also um, had a very good performance. Third round was when third the third round was when it really started to get fun. Um, both fighters come out and essentially throw down. This is the round where Aldo absolutely goes eleven out of ten. His hand speed uh, is off the charts. It's crazy how he's been in the game for so long, and yet despite the damage that he's inevitably had to take, he still has um, such incredible speed and athleticism. He turns up the knob on his power, too, and my favorite part um, is when, towards the end of the round, I, don't, I forget when, but he starts unleashing those devastating Muay Thai leg kicks. Now, it's a different thing when Pedro Munoz throws leg kicks against Aldo because Aldo is actually checking them, and so he actually can't throw them with full power, otherwise it would turn out into, you know, an Anderson Silva or Chris Weidman or Conor McGregor sort of shin break because Aldo is checking them properly. But either Pedro doesn't have a lot of practice checking them, or um, it's not in his instinct, it messes up with his game plan, I don't know. But because Pedro doesn't check the leg kicks properly, they really do a number on him. And basically Aldo chops his legs down a lot and makes him just absorb damage. Overall, Aldo doesn't finish Pedro, but I think in that fight, he clearly shows that he's the better fighter that night. He won all three rounds, um, and it's crazy because he's still fighting at the most elite levels, even after so many years. I think Aldo started fighting in 2004. Um, yeah, he's been fighting for a very long time, and at one point, he was on a 10-year tear through the featherweight division. He became champion of the featherweight division, first at the WEC, and then um, became the inaugural UFC featherweight champion. And he was dominating um, for the span of almost a decade before he lost his crown to Conor McGregor. Um, but what's crazy, though, is that you know, a, more, a vast majority of champions, once they end their long reign... Um, they usually really don't come back. So I'll give you a couple of examples. For instance, middleweight legend Anderson Silva. He lost the crown to Chris Weidman, and then after that, he went on to lose seven of his next nine fights, um, getting only two wins. And one of those wins was a no contest, uh, or one of those wins turned into a no contest because he tested positive for something. It was a fight against Nate, Nick Diaz. Another example is Henan Barrao, who um, at one point, um, he's a UFC Bantamweight champion. At one point, he was the top of the pound-for-pound -pound rankings. He's even considered the best fighter of the time. Uh, he had a 34-1 record, and he was basically undefeated. And then he lost to TJ Dillashaw. And after that, he was not the same fighter again. He went on to lose um, eight of his next ten fights. 
Finally, we have Tyron Woodley, who was defeated by Usman and then went on to lose like the next four fights and eventually left the UFC. So basically what I'm saying is that a lot of these champions who have long reigns, they there's a turning point in their career. And a, usually after that turning point, they don't come back. But it's different for Aldo. Aldo is defeated by McGregor. He comes back. And not only does he not go up a division because he's getting older, he actually goes down down to the bantamweight division which is even harder because now he has to cut more weight he has to he has to um take a lot more factors into account when he's training and it doesn't look like he's getting any worse than before obviously i think his best days are probably behind him but i think aldo is still a man to be feared in the bantamweight division so that was the co-main event. Um, now we're going to look at the third event in the main card of UFC 265, which is Vicente Luque versus Michael Chiesa. This is essentially um, you know, a classic story of a striker versus grappler, except with a twist. Uh, Luque proves in his last couple of fights that he's absolutely a silent assassin. The way he submitted former champion T-Wood and his numerous TKO victories all make him a formidable matchup against Michael Chiesa, who's a great grappler and has a record for, I think, um, the number of rear naked choke finishes in the UFC, or at least in the welterweight division. So coming out, you have to, um, what I expected at least was, you know, either um, Luke winning by KO or TKO, or Chelsea winning via uh, Chiesa winning via submission. Um, here's how it went down. So Chiesa comes out, he shows really good lateral movement, and he's pretty elusive for the most part. Nothing really significant hand happens in the stand-up, although he does manage to catch Luque with a straight punch and cut open his face. And then after a couple more um, seconds, Chiesa hits a double leg and takes Luque down to the ground where they scramble and end up in half guard with Luque in bottom. So then Chiesa manages to take Luque's back with one hook, and the other is um, locked in a sort of figure four around Luque's right leg. So he doesn't have both hooks in, but he's pretty secure on Luque's back. And as Luque struggles to escape, Chiesa sinks in a rear naked choke that doesn't really quite get under the chin, but it's really, really tight. And you know this if you if you basically train jujitsu is that it's a dangerous position because even though your opponent doesn't have the neck um, very cleanly, even if he just has the chin under that choke, all he has to do is have a very good squeeze. And if he puts pressure on it, um, at some point the jaw is going to break. So it's effectively, if it's not a blood choke, it becomes a sort of jaw crusher which will still make you tap nonetheless. It doesn't matter whether or not it's a blood choke. As long as um, the opponent taps, that's really all that matters. And so Luke is hand-fighting to get Kiesa's choking hand out of his face, and they scramble a couple more times with Kiesa almost getting the choke, I think, at least two more times. But eventually Vicente um, is able to struck, um, strug Kiesa's choking arm out of the way, he postures up into top half guard, and just as Kiesa tries to sit up, Luque slides his arm across and catches Kiesa in a very tight Darth choke. And it's so tight, you can see Kiesa's face turning purple as he tries to escape, but it's totally futile, and he ends up having to tap. Um, why is it such a twist? Well, because this quote-unquote striker, 
Luke, he finishes the grappler by a choke. And it just goes to show you how underrated Luke's ground game is. I mean, he's a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but um, as, Luke, uh, as Luke Thomas says in his show, that finish was a black belt Darth choke. So, all in all, I think UFC 265 was a great card. I didn't get a chance to watch the prelims, but I did see the early prelims, and that was really good, too. Um, the card, I, I believe that actually um, only one fight in the early... No, 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 no. I believe all the fights in the early prelims ended up with a finish. Um, very spectacular. The card uh, started with a rear naked choke finish, and then Victoria Leonardo got her hand broken by UFC newcomer Melissa Gatto, which ended the fight with a doctor stoppage. And then, um, yes, Manel Cape had that beautiful flying knee KO, um, which seems like a move that's becoming more common now, I think. I wonder if anybody's ever done like a history of the flying knee finishes and how many times we've seen it been finished in the UFC. Um, I know that first year of Jorge Masvidal finishing Ben Askren with it. There's also Corey Sandhagen finishing Frank Yeager with it. And um, we, saw it to, well, we saw it last night. There's probably a couple more times. Uh, those are the high-profile flying knee finishes that I remember. And then, oh, right, um, we also have Miles Johns KOing Anderson Dos Santos. So that one was also pretty beautiful as well. Um, Miles Johns displayed... Very beautiful, crisp, powerful boxing. It it it, it just um, it was amazing boxing skills. And sometimes I don't appreciate the stand up boxing as much. But um, what happened was yesterday I went back and watched the fight between Damian Maya and Ben Askren. And um, although the fight ends up going to the ground in that match, a, lo- a lot of the uh, um, a majority of the match actually is in stand up. And watching. Maya and Askren trade punches is actually pretty humorous because they don't have that crisp, explosive power of a striker um, because they're both grapplers. And so the when you when you look at the striking game and that match and you compare it to like a fight like Miles Johns, um, the difference is actually pretty apparent. Um, so yeah, that's actually uh, that's that's uh, all of the early prelims. And then, yep, I think that's pretty much it for the episode um, that we have today. If you like this breakdown, please consider giving us a like and subscribe. And that's it. I'll see you guys next week. Adios.